Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Picking up with Luke chapter 8, we're going to cover chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. Don't let that cause you to be fearful. We're not going to read every verse. Don't have time. I'm just touching on highlights as we're going through the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. The book of Luke, again, 24 chapters. We're going through 24 days in December, reading a chapter a day. If you haven't been, just start, jump in, start right now. But going through 24 uh, chapters of the book of Luke so that we can go through, before Christmas, the entire uh, story of our Jesus. Praise God. Luke is one of the most complete accounts of every aspect from his birth, his life and ministry, even as a child, in some part of his childhood, life and ministry, of course, then to his death and his resurrection. And it's Luke who picks up in the book of Acts about his ascension into heaven. So it is truly a great account, although we read all the Gospels, but it's a powerful account of the life of Jesus. We're picking up in Luke chapter 8 today. I'm going to focus on, in Luke chapter 8, just one set of verses here that relates to something significant to me and you. It's known as the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower. So I'm highlighting key things that we're learning in relationship to Jesus, his life, how that impacts us, how that affects us. Now before I get into that parable, because some people don't know this, it's good to touch on a couple little nuggets here and there along the way. I want to show you again, we talk about this all the time, we mention it today. People in Jesus' day gave to help him preach the gospel. People think Jesus was poor. Let me prove to you that he wasn't. One of the ways I can prove to you is in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. If you notice verse 3, it actually says, we'll back up here and we'll add verse 2. Certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom came seven demons, and Joanna, verse 3, the wife of who? The wife of who? Notice who the wife of Chusa was. That was Herod's steward. Herod was one of the rulers of the day. Any idea how much his steward made? Any idea how much his steward made? His steward was not a poor man. Are you listening? His wife is supporting the ministry of Jesus Christ. Notice this, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and underline it, please, many others. Underline it, many others. Watch this, who provided, underline that, who provided for him from their substance. Now, I'm going to tell you what, many others. So it wasn't just wealthy people, but wealthy people were giving to help Jesus preach the gospel. Jesus was not poor. This whole lie of the devil to convince you to think it's okay to have nothing because Jesus had nothing. I have a question. How are you going to help those in need? How are you going to do what Jesus said that we're to do to help others if we're poor and have nothing to help people with? Now, understandably, the gospel, obviously, is the most powerful thing we can help them with. But doesn't the Bible tell us to feed the poor? Absolutely. Doesn't the Bible tell us to help those that are in need? When we know that they're in a situation that they didn't cause, and obviously things can happen, and they need some help, yes, we are. But how can we do that if we're not in a position to do that? Now, if you're not there yet, it doesn't mean you can't be. So you got to realize you can't look at, well, I'm not there. Well, it doesn't mean you can't be. But you got to know this, Jesus was not poor. One of the other proofs uh, Jesus was not poor, anybody know what it was? 
in the context of the time of his crucifixion, they would take the clothes from the person that they're about to actually crucify, the Roman soldiers. They were so unconcerned about their life. But if they had decent clothes on, guess what? They would take them. And so in the days of Jesus, of course, he has this robe and all his clothes on. The Bible tells us, why do we need to know this? The Bible says they cast lots for his undergarment. Now, if you go study this in history, you'll find out there was two types of undergarments. There was one that was a two-piece and there was one that was a one-piece. Guess what the most expensive was? You know why? Hand-woven. Handmade. They cast lots for his garment. You know why? Because it was handmade. It was a one-piece garment. Jesus was not a poor man. This is the Son of God. So he wasn't poor, yeah, but he didn't have a home. He didn't need one. He had other people to provide a place for him. How many know the richest man on the world on the planet today? You know the richest man on the planet? Elon Musk. Guess what he doesn't own? A home. He doesn't own a home. He stays with friends all the time. Are you listening? You don't have to own a home to be wealthy. I'm not getting any amens today. I'm really concerned about the lukewarmness I sense in this morning. You need to kind of stir yourself up a little bit, get on fire for God. Guess what? You don't have to have a home to be wealthy. Amen. Amen. So Jesus was not poor. He had people given to help his ministry all the time. Realize when people say Jesus didn't receive offerings. Are you kidding? What was this all about? And why would you need a treasurer if you have no treasury? Jesus was the treasurer. So then you go to verse 4 and you get into what is, I want you to get this, in the context of the Gospels, Mark's account, Jesus said in Mark's account, if you don't understand this parable, you will not understand any parables, meaning that you will not understand anything that relates to the things of the kingdom because this is how revelation and understanding comes, through this parable. So you better understand this parable. That's why we're going to touch on it and take a little extra time with it. In, in chapter 8, it's the only thing we're going to look at because it's critical even to you and me today still getting what God has for our life by way of understanding revelation. Amen? One word from God can change your life forever. But it doesn't come to your head. It comes to your heart. So in notice this, Mark, excuse me, Luke chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in the explanation part. I don't have time to read all of it. He gives the actual parable in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Then the disciples, of course, like, man, can you explain this to us? So then he actually does. Verse 11, he now gives the understanding of the parable. Now, the parable is this. The seed is what? So he's talking about actually two separate things here in this parable, really three if you actually recognize what he says here. There's three things he refers to in this parable. The, The two key things are the seed and the ground, right? Seed has the ability to produce after its own kind. It's got to have good ground to grow in for it to produce. You could have seed, but if you don't have good ground to put it in, doesn't matter. Even though there's life in that seed, you listening? There's life in that seed, that life is not released until it's put into good ground. Now, there is one other element here, because there has to be a sower. You have to have somebody to sow the seed. In the context of this parable, the sower is those who preach the word. Those who speak the word. You're going to see this all through our study today. If you're not sitting under the preached word, you're not getting what God has for your life. Amen. You're not going to have everything God has available for your life. Amen? Amen. You got to have a sower. Say, so you got to have a sower. This is the parable of the sower. You got to have a sower, and they need to be sowing what? The word of God. So I don't need some pastor to stand up and tell me his opinion of the, of the Bible. Well, let me tell you my opinion. We don't care. I said, we don't care. I don't, I don't care about anybody's opinion of the Bible. What's your opinion? You shouldn't have one. 
He said, go study to show yourself approved. And what you know is black and, black and white in the Bible, that's what you stick with. If you're not sure, we don't need to know your opinion. Your opinion changes nobody. God's Word does. By the way, your opinion doesn't change what God said. You can have different opinions about a verse, but when God said something, it don't matter what your opinion is. If God said it, that's, that's it, man. And if you want truth to set you free, you got to accept the truth. Thank God we can. So realize you got to have a sower, you got to have the seed, you got to have the Word of God, verse 11, and you got to have good ground to put it in. What's your responsibility? Get under a sower who's sowing the Word and make sure my heart is good ground. I'm going to say that again. What is your responsibility here? Get under a sower who's sowing the Word. Find your shepherd. There ain't a verse for finding a church. You're the church. Find your shepherd. Find a minister God's gifted who speaks to your heart, who is able to open the Word of God up to you in a way you can understand it. When you did, you just found the second greatest gift next to salvation. We talked about this last week. Remember when Jesus was born? Who was the first people that the angel Gabriel showed up to pronounce his birth to? Shepherds. Why? Because that is what is needed after salvation. I need a shepherd in my life. Amen. All these people say, I don't need a shepherd, are denying what God gave you as a gift to help your life. That's the sower. Now, I got to know if I found the right sower or the right uh, shepherd, the right sower, guess what? I'm going to be getting the seed, the word of God. But I got to take care of my heart then. So if I found the shepherd and I'm getting the word, guess what my responsibility is now? Deal with my heart. And I guarantee you, we just took over, you know, we just bought a home, took over a garden that was already at our house that was really in bad shape. Not in good shape. We're still working on it. So even though you have a garden at one time that was producing stuff, guess what? You got to keep dealing with the soil. Because if you don't, next year it ain't going to produce again. You got to keep dealing with stuff in your, in your life as a believer. Listen to me. You never stop dealing with stuff in your life as a believer. Don't think I'm good ground and I'll remain good ground. You listening? You come to my house right now. You come to where they actually started a garden where at one time it was all nice and clean and stuff growing. And now you see weeds in it. And you see rocks in it. And you see alongside of it, wayside, hardened soil. And if you want that seed to grow next year, you got to do something with that ground. If you don't do something with that ground, it won't produce. The reason the Word of God... Oh, come on, man. Holy Spirit is so good. He just inspired me in what I'm saying today. And I love it when He does because that's what I'm here to do. The reason the Word of God doesn't work in many people's lives is because they don't take care of the soil. They don't take care of the heart. I'm not the caretaker of your heart. My wife is not the caretaker of my heart. Blame people all day long, but they're not the problem. If I'm not going to take care of my own heart, I'm not going to have ground prepared to receive that seed. Say, life's already in the seed. Plant it in good ground. What will it do? It'll grow. But you're the ground. You're the, you're the, your heart is the recipient of that seed. Verse 12, he said, these are those who by the wayside are the ones who hear. So they hear the word preached. But the devil comes and does what? How quick? He takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should be believe and be saved. So a lot of people say, well, that's just salvation. No, the word saved in the Greek language is sozo. S-O-Z-O. It's not talking about just a salvation experience alone. God wants you born again. That's the first key to receiving the seed of God's word. But sozo is an all-inclusive word in the Greek language. It also, if you look up the definition, means to be healed. It means to be delivered. It means to prosper. It means to be well off in every aspect of life. How many want that for your life? Then you got to do what? You got to make sure you're not wayside soil. 
Because of your wayside soul, your heart is hardened. We're going to go through these in just a minute. And therefore, the seed won't produce. What's wayside soul in a farmer's field? So it's that outer perimeter of ground that obviously in our day, a tractor drives over. In Jesus' day, animals walked over as they were getting the plow out to the field. And they got to have that, that outer perimeter part to get obviously to the field. But the problem is when they come along and sow their seed, they just scatter it. Guess what some of it does? Like he said, it falls on that wayside soil, that hardened ground. Guess what birds are waiting to do? Pluck it up. It don't go in the ground and produce nothing. The birds representing Satan just come along and they just plucks up the seed and it does no good. It was actually planted on a heart, but the heart was wayside soil. It was hardened. For some reason, it was hardened. And a hardened heart won't receive the word. And a hardened heart not receiving the word. Therefore, guess what Satan does? He snatches it away. Doesn't produce anything in your life. Verse 13, he said, these are the ones that are on the rock. Those who, when they hear the word, so they heard it as well, they receive it with what? Joy. What do they receive it with? Joy. It's not wrong to receive the word with joy. That's right. I said, it's not wrong to receive the word with joy. He didn't say that was a problem. Right. Anybody excited about receiving the word today? Yeah. So he said, they receive it with joy. Notice this, but they have no root. They have no root. Notice, they believe for a while, but in a time of what? Temptation or challenge, what do they do? They fall away. Now, Jesus in the book of Luke actually gives another example of this. We've already touched on it. He said, if you come to me and say you're my, that I'm, I'm your Lord, and you hear what I have to say, but you don't do it, storms will come. Storms will come. That's what he's talking about here as it relates to temptations. Talking about storms, challenges, things that tempt you in your belief of the Word of God. Things will come and challenge what you believe. And I guarantee you, if your seed is on stony ground, what's stony ground? So we're off of the wayside soul. We're out where the good ground is, but there's rocks still actually underlying parts of that soul. Guess what they got to do? They got to disc that, that ground up, and they got to get those rocks out as best of their ability, because if they don't, whatever seed lands on that rock, how many know what it's going to do immediately? Spring up. It's going to spring up. What's that seed trying to do? The moment a moment seed's planted in the ground, what's the first thing it tries to do? It tries to go down. It tries to push down into the ground and grow roots into the ground, right? Get a stable aspect of what it needs to grow. And then it'll eventually turn around and do what? Start coming up. Start growing up. So a rock keeps it from going down. A rock obviously stops it from going down, but it's still going to try to grow. So it get the, 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 the birds didn't get it. It's like rock just under the soil. So it just springs straight up. Looks like, wow, it's doing really good. But guess what happens when the heat of the day comes? Guess what happens when the storms of life come? It has no roots, so it withers away. Down it goes. Christians that are like this are those who continue to come to Jesus, hear what he has to say, but they don't do it, and they're stony ground. And when challenges come, they falter and fall. They don't stay in faith. They don't stay in faith. Just because you initially started faith don't mean you still are. Verse 14, but these are the ones that fell among thorns. Those who when they've heard, notice, they go out and they're choked. What are they? What, what are they? They're choked. Well, what? Cares of life, cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And they bring no fruit, no fruit to maturity. So here the seeds actually went down. It got a root in the ground. It started growing up. But what's all around it? Thorns, weeds. And guess what they do? Choke it out. Even though it actually gets bigger than the one that's on the rock, eventually the weeds to overtake it, and the cares and the concerns and the desires of the world choke out that seed and does what? Causes it to not bring forth fruit. 15, but the ones that fell on good ground say, that should be me. I don't know if it is. That's up to you. 
I can't say. You got to acknowledge that. But the ones that, notice this, the seeds that fell on good ground, watch this, having heard the word with a noble and good heart. Underline it. Having heard the word with a noble and good heart. Notice the next thing they do. They keep it. They apply it. They act upon it. They don't just come here a sermon and leave. Well, it was a good sermon. Glory to God. Time to go live life my way. No, you're coming here to hear the word of God to apply it to your life. Notice this. They keep it. What do they do? Tell me, what do they do? What do they do? They bear fruit with patience. It don't happen overnight, but you stick with it, and guess what? It grows up, and it produces the life of God. Anybody want more of the life of God manifest in your life? Okay, so let's go over this. I got to have a sower. Say, I got to have a sower. That's not your most uh, popular preacher on TV. I'm not coming against any preacher, but that's not what it's referring to. To have a proper sower, you need to actually have a personal relationship with a shepherd who you get to develop a relationship with, get to know, so you know for sure that's the person God has for me to hear the word of God. Now the devil, once you find that, is going to do everything he can to keep you out from under that shepherd. See, the devil really doesn't mind if Christians hear what they think is the word of God. He actually could care less if they go to a church that doesn't teach the word. Matter of fact, he loves that. If you go to a church that doesn't teach the word, but they teach what the Bible calls man-made philosophy or the traditions of men. What's philosophy? Your ideology. What you believe. What you want. What are the traditions of men? Religious mindset. Religious ways of trying to live under a form of something God never put us under as a type of bondage that will never help you to walk with God. Well, there's a lot of that goes on in church. So if I'm sitting under man philosophy or religion, religious-based teaching, I'm not getting the Word of God. So there's no life being produced in that. You listening? Man's philosophy doesn't produce genuine life. Man's religion doesn't produce genuine life. This is the only thing, ladies and gentlemen, right here that produces the life of God. This is the life of God. Jesus is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So realize if I don't have a passion and a desire to come and get the seed planted, I have nobody to blame but myself for not getting the life of God planted in my heart. Right? Got to have a sower. And they got to be sowing what? Seed of God's Word. Now, if they are, that doesn't mean I'm going to just rejoice in everything I hear. Because Jesus even told people who were living in sin, go and sin no more. Well, that's judging them. No, he's saying, don't keep doing this or you're going to hurt your life. So understand, I have to make sure I'm good ground. How do I do that? Make sure you're not the other three. It's that simple. How do I not become wayside soul? So let's touch on the first one. I want you to write a scripture reference down to this. Wayside soul, again, is a hardened heart. There's a verse in Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12, that tells us to break up the fallow ground or the hardened ground. God says, break up that hardened or fallow ground in your heart. And this is what he tells you in Hosea 10, 12, that you are now to seek the Lord. Who are those who are wayside soul, who have a hardened heart? You ready? They're not seeking God. They're not in church to have a relationship with Him. They're not doing the things of Christianity to walk close to God. They're going through the motions of Christianity. They're just going to get another sermon, get some kind of help or whatever. But it's not really about relationship with God. Let me help you. If this is not about a relationship with God, you're going to be wayside soul. It won't be hard for Satan to snatch the word out of your heart. Because there's no relationship involved with the one who wants you to walk in what he has for your life. Amen? No relationship is like that outer perimeter. Come on, that outer perimeter of the farmland. It's never going to produce any kind of life that God wants it to because it's hardened. Amen? You got to get over into the field where the ground has actually been broken up. 
So if you're that outer fringe of context of a person as a believer, that simply means you're not really passionate about your, your walk with God. If you're not passionate about your walk with God, what little bit of the seed you do get, your heart's so hardened, you won't hear it anyway. Again, for you, it's just a sermon. Just another message. And, you know, name what you want. It's just a, I, you know, we got to go to church because we're Christians. See, I'll guarantee you that person isn't walking in a relationship with God. If you're walking in a relationship with God, you know what you're like? You're like King David. You know what David said? You know what David said? You know what King David said? Preach it, Kathy. You know what King David said? I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. He wasn't depressed about it. He wasn't frustrated about it. He wanted to be there. Why? Because he knew he got an opportunity to learn more about his God. So, number one, you got to be somebody who desires and wants and pursues a relationship with God. If you don't, your heart will be hardened by the world, by the things of life, because that's where your focus is. It ain't hard to figure out. If my focus ain't on God, what's it on? It's on the world. Yourself included, uh, a context of the world. If I'm looking to the world, guess what my heart's going to be towards God? It's not going to soften your heart. The world's not going to soften your heart towards God. It's going to harden it. It's going to harden it, so I'm not going to receive the seed. Amen? So you've got to make sure your focus is relationship with God every day. Every day. The number two context of what he talks about, stony ground. So these are those stones right under the soil. I referred to it a minute ago again that Jesus talked about this earlier in the book of Luke. And he said, why do you come to me, Luke 6, and call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? So here's what you're like if you hear what I actually tell you, but you don't actually put application to it. He said, you're building a house. So you're seeing stuff grow. You're seeing stuff come up. But when a storm comes, come on, when a challenge to your faith comes, guess what it's going to do? It's going to knock you flat again. Why? You have no foundation on the solid rock deep down, which is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Amen. So what is the stony ground? A hearer of the Word, but not a doer. They might actually have a desire to know God, but they still won't apply what they learn in church. They come and hear the word preached, but they don't put application to it. No application. You're a hearer only, not a doer. James puts it this way. James says if you're a hearer, not a doer, it's like you look in a mirror. Guess what you're looking at in the word of God today? You. You're getting to see a reflection of who God made you to be. He said it's like a person who's a hearer, not a doer, who looks in the, in the context of the natural, looks in the mirror. They walk away and they forget what kind of man they are. See, if you're not a doer of the word, you'll forget the child of God you really are. And therefore, when Satan challenges you, he'll knock you down every time because you have no idea who you are. Guess what, church? If you know who you are, the devil's in trouble because he can't knock you down. When he tries to knock you down, you say, you know who you're messing with? I'm a child of God. Come on, you know who you're coming against? I'm an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with Jesus. But see, if you're not a doer of the word, you forget who you are. And therefore, you might grow for a little while, you might get a little excited about the Word of God, but when times, and this is the problem, those who are not doers of the Word and then things get knocked down because of storms of life, guess who they blame? They blame God. I thought this stuff worked. It does. But if you don't have a strong foundation deep down, guess what? It won't work for you. The devil will win every time because he'll get you out of faith. The devil constantly works at believers to simply be hearers of the Word and not doers. Now, what if I'm not even hearing it? You're not even at this stage yet. But if I'm a hearer but not a doer, I'm not building on a solid, deep, deep foundation. When storms come, they're not going to knock me down. Meaning what? You ain't going to get out of faith. I love what Jesus said in Luke 6. He said, they can't even shake you. Come on, the storms of life can't even shake you. Who is not shaken by the storms of life? Those who hear and do what the Bible says. Now, what about the third area? 
What about the, the thorny ground, the weedy ground? What about that? What about the weeds in context of life? Well, weeds are cares, desires for riches, right? Desires for other things, uh, uh, Mark's account says. Uh, so realize this. Who is somebody who is a believer who's not wayside? They're pursuing a relationship with God. They're a doer. They're actually applying God's work. But for some reason, it seems like as I get close to this thing working for me, it's all of a sudden I'm just overtaken. How do you know you're overtaken? I'll tell you how. You get in fear, you get frustrated, you get worried, and obviously you allow that to take over your thought life and what they actually think you're going to speak and your words coming out speak death and now they destroy the very seed that you had growing up in your life. So those are the weeds. What is a thorny ground Christian? You ready? You ready? Kathy is. Who else is? Carnal. You're a carnal Christian. Your focus is carnality. Your focus is still the world because if you're focused on the world, guess what you're going to do? You're going to get caught up with the cares of life. You're going to get caught up with what the Bible says, the deceitfulness of riches. Does that mean God don't want us to have riches? No. He says, don't get caught up in the context of the deceitfulness of riches. Meaning what? Money's my answer. No, it ain't. God's your answer. I said, God's your answer. Jesus never said money's my answer. Did he? He went around knowing my God supplies. And he did everywhere he went. Why? Because God was his, his uh, source. So you got to realize the deceitfulness of riches is thinking money's my answer. When you get caught up with the deceitfulness of riches, you're also a stingy giver. Because you're relying on your money, not relying on your God. So you got to understand you don't want to be a thorny ground Christian either. So if I'm not wayside, what's wayside, soul? Heart, which means what? What's wayside believer? They don't really want to know God. They're not pursuing a relationship with God. Right? Number two, what's stony ground? I hear the word, but I don't what? Not a doer. I hear it, but I don't do it. Then it won't help you. It'll grow up for a while, but when, when the challenges come, you're going to go down. What is therefore thorny ground? Carnal Christian. They're caught up in the cares of the life, cares of this world, thinking about all the things of this world. And therefore, if they are carnal in their focus, then guess what? Those thorns are going to enter in and choke out the word. But what if I'm not any of those three? You're good ground. Let's look at it again, verse 15. Come on. He said, those who are good ground, notice they not only heard the word, they heard the word, but they heard it with what? What did they hear it with? What did they hear it with? First word, what did they hear it with? A noble heart. What's a noble heart? One who desires to honor God with what they hear. Listen to that. What's a noble heart? One who wants to honor God with what they hear. My purpose of hearing it isn't for personal gain. It's to honor God. You listening? If I come to the Bible just to hear it for personal gain, you're not going to honor God. And eventually those things are going to overtake your life. So noble heart means I'm not getting this for me. We talked about this recently in in the context of uh, this series about being a good steward. Remember that? Being a good steward. What's a good steward? A good steward realizes I don't own anything. I'm just a caretaker of what I've been given. My life's been bought with a price. I'm glad about that. I I can speak for me because I know I'm a believer. And I'm glad that I've been bought with a price. But that means I don't own me. Remember the example I used the bottle of water with Linda that night? You got to understand that if I'm a good steward, then I don't determine what I do in my life. God does. I look to him and say, what do you want me to do? So a good steward is going to be one who recognizes I belong to God and therefore what you hear from the word of God you do with a noble heart, meaning what? I'm receiving what God has for me to do what? To honor him. It's all about honoring him. Notice what else he does. He not only hears it with a noble heart, but also a what? A good heart. Underline that, please. Good heart. The Greek wording here for good means agreeable. This is powerful. 
agreeable. I wish they had translated it that way because that's what it says in the Greek language. So when you hear the Word of God, what, do you, what should you be doing as the Word of God is being preached? You ought to be agreeing with it. You should agree with everything it says about you. Well, I know the Bible says that about me, but... Nope, see right there, you're, you're allowing thorns to come in. So you got to immediately take the Word of God of what it says and say, you know what? I'm agreeing with the Bible. I'm agreeing with the Bible. If the Bible said I'm more than a conqueror, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you say about me. I believe what God said about me. I'm more than a conqueror. If the Bible said I can forgive, then I'm forgiven. If the Bible said I can love even my enemies, then I'm loving even my enemies. See, they receive it with what? They receive it with an agreeable heart. A good heart is one who agrees with the Word of God. Don't argue with God. I'll tell you why. You're never going to win. Why would you want to? Why would not just agree with Him? Even as it relates to the promises of God. Why do the promises work for some and not others? They agree with the Word. They take God's Word at what it says, face value. They say, well, that's what God says about my body, then I'm going to believe it. Notice this, they keep it, so they put application to what they receive, and therefore they do what? They bear fruit with patience. Meaning what? They're going to be consistent at it. Those who are producers of the Word of God are going to be consistent at it. Why? They're going to see the results, and they're going to stick with it. Amen? So the rest of Luke chapter 8, we don't have time to go through. This is where Jesus even rebukes a storm. I wish I had time. In Texas, it's good to know. We've taught it many times. You know, I, I, I deal with people all the time. Well, we're not going to live here because of tornadoes. I said, well, I don't concern myself with tornadoes. We're not going to live there because of hurricanes. Or I'm not going to live. Well, it's not about where you want to live. Where does God want you? Right. And wherever God wants you, you have authority. Right. Now, if you don't believe that, in the context of this storm that came up against them while they're trying to go across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is asleep. They wake him up. Don't you care that we're perishing? What did Jesus say to them? Oh, I'm glad you woke me up or we'd all died. So glad you guys, man, you, you got me up just in the nick of time. Let me deal with this storm and we'll get to the other side. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? Oh you, oh, you have little faith. Meaning what? Why didn't you do something about it? Right. We're going to see it in, in a minute. I gave you authority to deal with stuff on this earth. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. So that's found in uh, 22 through 25 of Luke chapter 8. Down here in verse 40, it actually goes on to talk about uh, powerful, powerful uh, teachings, which I wish we had time of a little girl who winds up dying and he raises her from the dead. In the midst of that, there was a woman with the issue of blood who also got supernaturally healed simply because she believed in what obviously she heard about Jesus that she could be healed. Luke chapter 9, we're moving on. You still with me? So Luke chapter 9, verse 1 now. He called his 12 disciples together. How many? How many? So these are the initial 12. These are the initial 12 that he chose. And underline it, please, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Verse 2, and then he sent them out. He sends them out with this power and authority. How are they going to take this power and authority and use it? This is a big part of what most Christians don't see. We'll see it again in a minute that they miss. Notice what he said. Preach the kingdom of God. What were they to preach? Now, how many know other phrases in the Bible says preach the gospel? What's the gospel? What is the good news then? I'll tell you what the good news is. It's the kingdom of God. He went and told them all through the Bible and he himself did it. He said, I'm actually here to preach the kingdom of God. Meaning what? Okay, so from the context of the fall back in the Old Testament, what happened to the authority God gave man? Satan took advantage of it. He got authority into the earth. What did Jesus do? He got it back. 
I said, he got it back. Bible says he went into hell itself, come on, and defeated Satan. Hallelujah. Took the keys, authority that, he had originally, that God originally given him, and he got it back for us. The kingdom of God means the dominion of the king is once again here for everybody, not just for Jesus. That dominion is available for all. That's good news. I said, that's good news. So he tells them to go take this authority and they exercise it by proclaiming God's dominion. God's dominion is here to operate in all of people's lives. And therefore, you can even do what? Heal the sick. Verse 6 says, they departed and they went through the towns, underline it please, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So you should, write a, uh, you should have a little note tied from verse 2 to verse 6. He told them in verse 2, go preach the kingdom. Verse 6 says they went preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In verse 2 again, preach the kingdom, heal the sick. They fulfilled it in verse 6. So what's preaching the gospel? Telling people the kingdom's at hand. The dominion of the king is here. When you show up, guess what just showed up? God did, which means what? The dominion of the king just showed up. Come on. I have authority to exercise the dominion of my king over disease, over sickness, over the works of Satan. Hallelujah. So you go down to verse 11. It says, when the multitudes had known, notice they followed him, context of him feeding the uh, 5,000 here. But here's what I want you to see. He received them and he did what? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So even Jesus did it. So what he's revealing here in chapter 9 is, you and I, the moment we get born again, if you're born again, say, I am. If you're born again, you know you've been born again as a child of God. Guess what you have? You're going to see it again in a minute. You have the same authority. Which means I have the ability to establish the kingdom yes. of God. The dominion of my king can overtake the dominion of Satan. Aren't you glad? Yes. I said, aren't you glad? Yes. Go down to the end of the chapter, end of chapter 9, verse 57. Now he begins to talk about the cost of being a disciple. There's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? Come on, we talked about it Wednesday night. It's a student. If you look at the word disciple, it means a student, one who learns from another. They become a student of that person they want to learn from, and they submit to them, and they submit to all of what they teach them and how to do these things. And therefore, they become, remember Luke 6, 40, like, like their teacher. A disciple becomes like their teacher. So here in verse 57, we see the cost, therefore, of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Verse 57, it happened as they, Jesus and his disciples, journeyed on the road. Someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Meaning what? I'll be your disciple. No matter where you go, I'll stick with you. I'll be with you. Notice what Jesus said to him, because he knows the hearts of all men. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now that just means, if you look this up, it means I don't even own a home. Doesn't mean he didn't have places to stay. But in other words, you're used to having your own place. You're used to having, you ready? Things your way. And to be my disciple means you ain't going to have things your way. You know what this, you know, basically, you know what he told him was? To be my disciple is going to inconvenience you. That don't mean you're going to be poor, have nothing again, live on the street. Not what I'm saying. But it's going to inconvenience you. You're, he's talking to this man in the language that Greek scholars tell us. He's talking to this man saying, you like the conveniences of having everything that you have. To be my disciple, guess what? You're going to have to learn to give up some things that you may not want to give up to follow me to do what I ask you to do. Amen? I don't mean everybody sells their home, gives up all the things they have. He just means it's not going to be convenient. 
So then he goes on and he starts talking about this further. In verse 59, he turns to another and he tells another, follow him. You follow me. Notice what he said. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, this sounds pretty, you know, this sounds pretty harsh and uncaring. He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Preach what again? Now, see, this is what a lot of people misunderstand. They think this guy is saying, my dad just died. And so I need to go and prepare a burial for him and bury him and all that. No, that's not what the Greek... If you look at the Greek language, here's what it says. I got to go stay and live with my father till he dies. After I have actually had opportunity to live with my family, do what I want with my family, and they die off, and they're gone, now I'll be your disciple. Let me help you. You can honor your father and mother and still be a disciple of Jesus. But what this man is doing, you ready? You ready? Luke puts it in another account this way. You can't love father or mother or your own life more than me. That doesn't mean don't love your father and mother. It means you can't put them above God. If I put them above God, how many know an ungodly father and mother will lead you away from Jesus? So realize, it doesn't mean we don't honor parents in a way that's biblical and right, but we don't put them before God. And that's what this guy was saying. Let me go bury my father. So what he was saying was, my family's priority. My family's number one. Jesus said, can't be my disciple then, because I have to be the priority. You listening? 61. Another also said, Lord, I'll follow you. But notice this. But let me first go and bid them farewell, all of my family and friends who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and then looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Fit means useful. Useful for the kingdom. So again, this is just referring to you putting other things in your life, relationships with others, etc., in front of Jesus. How many understand you can't put anything in front of Jesus if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus? It's really simple, folks. Here's the cost of discipleship. If Jesus isn't number one in your life, he's not discipling you. We'll say it again. If Jesus is not number one in your life, he is not discipling you. Whatever's number one in your life, that's what's discipling you. That's what your focus is on. That's what you're gleaning from. That's what you're learning from. You know, even as a bull rider, I realized somebody who was worthless at it my first five years, it's because I was hanging around people that were as worthless as I was. And I had to find somebody to teach me how to do this so I could get better at it. But you know what? You can still do things like that in life and still have Jesus as the priority of your life. It doesn't mean you can't glean from others about things you can learn and do, but that can't be more important than Jesus. Can I get a better amen? amen? So you got to be willing, as Jesus said it in another context of the book of Luke, you got to be willing to forsake all if you want to be my disciple. Meaning what? You got to put me first. Right. You got to put me first. Say, Jesus has to be first. You're, you're clearly not a disciple of his if he's not first in your life. Now, remember in Luke 9, the start of Luke 9, who did he give authority to? The initial 12. The initial 12. Look at this. Well, I'm not one of the 12. All right. Look at Luke 10. After these things, the Lord appointed what? 70 others also. Not the 12. Now he is actually pointing 70 others also. Notice what he does. He sends them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he says to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he's saying that you should pray for laborers, but you should also be one. Verse 3, go your way. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Now, he goes on and talks about carrying neither money bag nor knapsack. In other words, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. But notice this. Drop down, please, with me to verse 9. Notice what he tells him. Do what? Heal the sick there. What did he tell the 12? Same thing. 
He says, heal the sick there. Say to them again, what are we supposed to say? Kingdom Kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice this. You are telling them God's kingdom, his dominion, is once again available to deal with Satan. But whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has what? So it was made available. You just chose not to accept it. You chose not to allow me to help you. To let God help you through me. Notice verse 16. He who hears you, Jesus said, hears what? He who hears you hears what? Me. So you go out and you share the kingdom. You go out and you do what we've taught you to do to tell people how good God's been to you. Things God's done for your life. How he'll help them. What if they don't hear you? They're not listening to Jesus. Watch this. He who rejects you rejects what? Me. And he who rejects me rejects what? The Father who sent me. you got to understand when you go share the gospel, if people don't like it and they don't want to hear you, they ain't rejecting you. It ain't you they're rejecting. They're rejecting the good news of the Father. They're rejecting the opportunity for the kingdom to touch their life. So you can't force the kingdom on anybody. But realize a lot of people get hung up. Well, I don't want to witness because people reject me. They ain't rejecting you, darling. They're rejecting Jesus. Sadly, they're rejecting the Father. So you got to get you out of the picture there. Because if you're sharing the gospel, they ain't rejecting you. Sadly, they're rejecting the Lord. Verse 17, you're still with me, aren't you? Notice what happened. The 70 returned. Say they returned. They returned with great depression and frustration. (laughs) Come on. What did they return with? What did they return with? Shout it at me one time. They didn't return with depression, sadness, and down and out. No, they returned with joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know why? They went and used the authority he gave them. They went and preached the gospel. What was the gospel? Hey, the dominion of the king is here. I come as a representative of that dominion. I have it with me. It's been granted unto me. If you'll believe it and receive it, I can pray for you. That dominion will overtake your body. That that disease will be driven out. That demon will go. Come on, you will get set free. Why? Because the dominion of the king is here. You just got to be willing enough to receive it. What if they reject it? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the one that sent you. So again, they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 18. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What's that mean? It didn't take long. There was no battle. It was a swift kick in the rear. Down to the earth he came. Verse 19. Behold, I do what? Underline the rest of the verse, please. Because if you have anything less, you could not therefore fulfill what he told you to go do in John 14, 12. He said, if you believe in him, you can do the works he did. How are you going to do that? Same way these disciples did. I give you the authority to do what? What are you supposed to do? Trample on. Come on. Trample on. Why do you let serpents trample on you? I just feel that. Use your authority. Find out who you are as a child of God and quit whining and moaning and groaning because that ain't going to help you gain victory. Your pity parties will just keep you defeated. You listening? Not, not faulting or belittling what you might go through, but a pity party ain't going to get you out of it. It's going to put you deeper into it. You know what a pity... Party does. You're, deep, you're digging a deeper pit. You're, just deep, you're, you're going down further and further and further and further. Notice, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over how much? How much? How much? All the power of the enemy. doesn't matter what he brings against you. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Twenty, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice because your names are what? Now, if you've never done this before, you've been given authority. What is, what is authority? 
delegated power. It's not my power. See, a lot of people say, well, I've got authority. No, no, you've been given authority. You don't have authority. You've been given authority. Why? Because it's delegated power. You don't have the power. If you had the power, you didn't need Jesus. If you had the power, you didn't need him to die for you. But the moment you got born again, guess what came to live in you? Oh, you don't want to miss Christmas Day. Christmas Day, I'm going to share the, the Christmas story. And we're going to talk about Mary, did you know? And we're going to turn around and say, but the believer, did you know? And you got to understand, when you're walking on this planet with God, you're walking with full authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Well, it ain't working for me. Then you ain't doing it right. Because it works. I said it worked. They came back rejoicing. Wow, even the demons are subject to us. Come on, somebody. So what's the authority I've been given? Delegated power. See, you can't ever look at it like it's my power. Or I've got the power to do this. It won't work. Well, I've got the authority to do this. It won't work. No, you've been given authority, delegated power from God. Now, the cool part about that is how many believe the power of God can do anything it needs to do? Well, guess what? You got it. You just got to learn how to use it. Can I get a better amen? So understand this, though. Notice verse 20. He said, don't rejoice that even these demons are subject to you. Rejoice in what? Listen carefully to me, please. Here's what he told him. What you are is far more, far more important than what you do. It's not, it's not saying it's not important what you do. It is important what you do. But what you are is far important than what you do. Because who you are, the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, means you're a child of God. That's far more. Don't rejoice that you have the ability, the authority to deal with demons. That's what you do. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in what? Who you are. Because it's knowing who you are that makes you realize, I have the ability to do this. Can I get a better amen? But see, if you don't know who you are in Christ, we teach it all the time. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you don't realize you have this ability. Isn't it sad to know many believers are living way below, way below their privilege as a believer because they don't know who they are. Don't know who they are. Bottom of the chapter, you're still with me, aren't you? So in the bottom of the chapter, we go through, obviously, what they had done as disciples. And another experience, actually, that happened in, uh, with a Samaritan. We're going to pass over all that. And we're going to go down to verse 38. Because this ties right back into the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is tying right into this same thing that happened here with Martha and Mary. Verse 38, it happened as they went now and he entered a certain village. Him and his disciples, a certain woman named Martha, welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called what? What's Jesus doing there? What's Jesus doing everywhere he's going? He's teaching the kingdom. He's teaching how it works. He's giving him instruction how this stuff works. Amen. So he comes into their home. Notice verse 39. She also had a sister called Mary under this, underline this, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. They were both sitting at the feet of Jesus being taught the word of God. When you come to God's house to the shepherd God has for you, and you don't act like Martha, but like Mary. Guess what? You're sitting at the feet of Jesus being taught the word of God. Martha was too, but Martha gets distracted. Verse 40, Martha was what? Martha was what? Notice this, with much serving. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Notice this, therefore tell her to help me. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, this is a sweet rebuke. This is a rebuke, but it's very sweet. He didn't, he didn't get harsh with her, but he told her the truth. Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. Why? You're distracted. You're distracted. Your focus is wrong. Watch this, 40, 42. But one thing is needed, and Mary has what? Chosen, Chosen the, that good part, which will not what? 
So, so let's talk about this. This is the key that I want you to get these verses. Say one thing is needed. There, there's one thing needed in your life, folks, and I want you to get it. You got to follow it back to the beginning. The one thing that is needed is instruction from Jesus, but it won't come unless you're focused on him. Got to be focused on him. So the one thing that's needed is I need instruction from God in my life. But to get that, I got to be focused on him. Now, here's what's interesting. All right. Let's talk about Mary and Martha for just a minute. There are Marthas who won't even come to the house of God to hear the word of God preached because they're too distracted. They're too busy. They're too busy with other things. More important to them is what they do out there than what they could do when they're in here. Now, I'm not talking about the fact that you obviously don't have a choice. Maybe in your situation with your work, you can't be here all the time. I'm talking about you have a decision to make. You could choose to be here or lay on the couch and sleep. You could choose to be here or go to another function. You could choose to be here or sit home and watch TV. So it's your choice. Martha had the choice. Mary had the choice, right? They both had the choice. Yes, no, maybe. Let's back to the parable of the sower. So what's being sown? The word of God. Will it not produce life in you? You bet it will. It'll produce what? The God kind of life. What if I'm not there to get the seed? You can't get it. Got to have a sower. The Bible said it. So realize this. This is important. Now, Martha and Mary is always related to people in this way. Martha's the one distracted who won't come and hear the word preached. True. Mary's the one who will. True, but you got to take the story beyond that. Because in this story, weren't Martha and Mary both in church at the time? Yes. Weren't they both sitting at the feet of Jesus? Yes. Weren't they both there in his presence? You know, you can sit in church and be a Martha. Yes. <coughs> I said, you can sit in church and be a Martha. Yes. Being what? Distracted. Right. Thinking about other things. Man, it's almost 12 o'clock. I'm hungry. When are we going to get out here? Hi, Martha. <laughs> Bye, Martha. If you're more concerned about other things when the word's being preached, Jesus is talking. I said, Jesus is talking. And you're going to get distracted. The word himself is right there revealing instruction for you. And more important to you is to go and serve everybody in the house. Are you kidding me? You can sit in church and be easily distracted. Brother Soberall said it this way. How is it you can have two people sitting here side by side? One's growing. They're producing. God's working in their life. The other's not. They're both coming to the same service. One's a Mary. One's a Martha. One's distracted. One's not taking an application of what they're learning. They're not applying it. But Mary is. She's getting every word she can. Be a Mary, not a Martha. Can I get a better amen? We can credit Martha. At least she did have him in the house. But she wasn't paying attention. She got distracted. One thing is needed. What is it? You better not get distracted. You need instruction from God. And therefore, you better not get pulled away from the Savior when He's speaking to you in the Word of God. Amen? Luke chapter 11. Come on, we're almost done today. Luke chapter 11 this morning anyway. Luke chapter 11, we go through the aspect of what it talks about here about the model prayer. I want to touch on that for just a second. Not going to read it with you. Not going to go over it. But I love something Brother Hagen brought out about this for years. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the disciples, in the time they were with Jesus, said, teach us to pray. So this prayer has been prayed over and over and over again and quoted by people again and again and again. How many of you know Jesus said that you don't take a prayer and just quote it over and over again? So that's not what he intended for this prayer, right? 
in the time he's with them, they're wanting to learn while he's here, how do we pray? So he gives them this basic outline of what they can know about how to structure their prayer life. But this is not relating to what he teaches them before he leaves. Because there's nothing said in the model of prayer about asking anything in the name of Jesus. This was a temporary form of prayer for them in the time where they're at right now that they could use to model themselves under. But now that Jesus has gone, Jesus said, listen, once I'm no longer here, you can ask the Father in my name. That's not in this prayer. So this isn't for us today. You can take it as a model about what God wants for your life. But you don't pray this prayer over and over and over and see it work. Again, Jesus said, you're not going to be heard for your many words. You understand that? So it's not take this prayer and repeat it over and over and over again and somehow all this will work for you because he even says you're not going to be heard for your many words. But notice what he does say. Look at verse 9. I say to you, ask. I say to you, ask, and you will what? What will you do? It'll be given unto you. You'll receive. If you ask of God biblically, you ask in faith, you ask according to his will, guess what you don't have to do? Ask for the same thing over and over and over and over again because he said you don't do that. If you ask of God, this is all he's saying in these verses of 9 and 10. Let's read it. Ask and it will be given to you. It might. It might. It will. Seek and you might find. No, you will. Knock and it. Notice every time. The, the, the strongest assertion you can make in, this, in the English language is that I will or it will. That's an absolute. So if you ask, guess what? It will be given to you. If you seek, guess what will happen? You will find. If you knock, guess what? It will be open. Listen, for everyone who asks what? Receives. Receives. He who seeks what? Finds. Finds. And he who knocks, it will be? So what he's saying here is, and understanding prayer, is it means that you can certainly ask of God for whatever you have need of. But if you ask, you've got to know this, I'm going to receive. Not because I ask over and over again, because he told you not to do that. So you and I got to know how to ask in faith. We got to know how to petition God in faith and believe. Mark chapter 11, we receive, verse 23, when we pray. Come on, if we believe we receive when we pray, we know we have what we've asked of God. You'll get it. It'll come to pass, right? So that's asking and understanding for God and recognizing things we can ask God for in our life that we can ask in the name of Jesus. Notice the next thing. And if you seek, what will you do? You'll find. So what is seeking? Seeking is finding out the will of God for your life. You want to know the will of God for your life? Seek God for the will of God in your life. You'll find it. He'll show you. If you're, if you're sincere to know the will of God and seek out what he has for your life, he'll reveal it. He'll, he, now, all this verse is saying is, I'm not holding anything back. God's not holding anything back. People think God's still holding stuff back. No, he says, listen, you have not because you ask not. You don't know my will because you don't seek it. You ready for the last one? Come on, this is good. I'd like to preach on this about an hour. Can you tell? You ready? If you would knock, the door would be open. What's that talking about? Fellowship to you is open anytime. I'm not hiding from you. I'm not keeping myself from you. The problem is you ain't knocking. In the book of Revelation to the churches in Revelation, in one of those verses, one of those churches, he said that those, he said, he said, I stand at the door and knock. He's waiting for people to answer. And he's not talking about the world. He's talking about Christians. I'm standing there wanting to fellowship with you, and I would love to, and I'll open the door to fellowship with you, but guess what? You're not pursuing that fellowship. Can I get a better amen? amen. So three things he just told you. And all, of, all these three things say is, God's not holding anything back. Say it. All Jesus is saying is, if you ask and you ask in faith, guess what? You're going to receive because God wants you to have it. Isn't that good? Amen. 
if you would seek to know the will of God for your life, God's not holding it back. God's not hiding anything from you. He's not trying to keep you from knowing His will. Well, I sure wish God would reveal His will. Seek, and you'll find it. Come on, somebody. If you want to have intimate relationship with God, knock on the door every day. Open, and He'll open, and guess what? You can fellowship with Him. He's not keeping anything from you. I said He's not keeping anything from you. God's not holding anything back. Say it. So you got to understand this. It's up to me. It's up to me to make sure that I'm asking biblically, seeking the will of God, and knocking that door on that door of fellowship. All right, last part of today. Luke chapter 11. You keep on going. He talks about, I'd love to touch on it more, but, you know, in verse 27, we'll just look at it real quick, okay? Notice, it happened as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, what did Jesus say? More than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and you want to be blessed? That's two of you. I heard two yeses in the room. You should know when to respond to the word of God. Do you want to be blessed? Guess what you need to do? Hear the word of God and keep it. And Jesus said, say Jesus said. He said you'd be blessed. You hear it and keep it. How many times do we hear this now over and over in context of what we're looking at relating to all the things you've been talking about all the way back to the parable of the sower. Amen. Even back to Luke 6 that we already touched on before. So you keep going here. I wish we had time. He talks about at the end of this chapter relating to the Pharisees and the context of the Sadducees of their day, these religious people of their day, that they themselves really didn't want to know God. They wanted, to look to the, look, they wanted the people to look at them like they knew God. But they really didn't. They wanted, the, they wanted all the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted all the attention. If you want to know God, you don't want attention. If you want to know God, you don't want attention. You want God to get attention. But I'm going to show you back here in verse 34. This is powerful. We've got to touch on this. Luke eleven thirty four. closing this morning. Notice what Jesus said here. The lamp of the body is the eye. Now the body here, got to get this. So the body here in the Greek text says the whole being. The whole person. So this is not just referring to the physical body. This is talking about your life. This is talking about your life. If you actually want your life full of light, the things of God, there's something you're going to have to do. If you want your life full of darkness, then you're not doing what you should be doing. The lamp of the body, what illuminates, what brings insight, what brings understanding and light to the body is the eye. Say it's the eye. Watch this. Therefore, if your, when your eye is what? Good. Circle, highlight, or underline that word, please. When your eye is good, the whole body, your entire life will be what? Full of light. It'll be full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body will be full of what? Wow. So we're going to learn about what that means in just a minute. 35. Notice this. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. How do you do that? By your eye. Verse 36. If then your whole body, your entire life is full of light, Having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Now, does anybody know what verse 36 is a prophetic sign of? A prophetic picture of? The glory of the Lord. Amen. The glory of the Lord. God's coming back for a glorious church. Amen. A church illuminated with God. People know there's something different about you. So who are these glorious churchgoers? Who are these glorious church people? I'll tell you who they are. They're the people who understand the importance of their eye. Their eye is talking about what you focus your life on. 
what you focus your life on. Now, he's using the natural eye because obviously you use your natural eye to focus on things. But he's not just saying what your eye looks at every day, although included. He's talking about your focus. What you focus on will fill your life. Are you listening? And there's only one way you get full of light. Has to be good. Your focus has to be good. If your focus ain't good, what did he call it? Evil. It's one or the other. It's no in between. There's no gray on this. So what does it mean to be good on my focus? The word good actually is a horrible, again, translation in most English languages. Guess what the word is? Single. If your focus is single, 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 and in this case, clearly on what? God. What will you be? Full of light. But if your focus is evil, in other words, James says it this way, you're double-minded. You're double-minded. Your focus isn't just on God. You might be kind of looking to God, but you're still looking also to the world or to your own wants or your own ways. James says that's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. Guess what? He'll receive nothing from the Lord. He won't get to have a life filled with the light of God. You'll never have your life full of the light of God if you are what? If you have uh, double vision. If you're double-minded. If you're not solely focused on God, if you continue to focus on other things and you say, I'm focused on God, guess what? If you're still focused on other things and trying to focus on God, as James says, you're double-minded. You're unstable. What's the sign I'm double-minded? I'm not a true strong faith uh, woman or man of God. Because uh, a person who's unstable is not walking in, in strong faith. Right? right? But a person who's walking in strong faith, guess what? They're single-focused. Come on, somebody. So you and I, to have our life full of the light of God, the life of God, what do we got to do? We got to get a single focus on God. Amen. He says it again. You got to be totally focused on him. He's got to be the priority. Remember the cost of discipleship? Because if he's not, right? Now, if he's my focus, guess who I get all my guidance, direction, insight, uh, understanding from, directions from, corrections from? God. Guess who tells me how to live my life? God does. Guess who tells me what I do? God does. Not because it's bad for me, because it's good for me. If I'm singly focused on God, what's my life going to be full of? Light. Light. More of God. More of God. Hallelujah. But if my focus is what? Evil. Double-minded. God can't fill you with light when you're focused on other things. Amen. Where's your focus today? We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.